We have a week to go, one more week, the end of the Green Sunday, the Feast of Christ the King. And on that, that last Green Sunday, we'll wear white, so go figure. <laughs> but then it inaugurates the beginning of the Christian year, which is the season of Advent. It's one of my favorite seasons. The hymns are great. Uh, we wear the old English use color, blue. And that's a great season for four weeks before Christmas. I mention this because uh, Advent is a time of a- anxious expectation and hope and joy. And so the readings for the last two or three weeks in the Green Sundays begin to uh, bring us into that kind of way of understanding. And today, all three readings are about living in anxious times. It seems like, you know, in one sense, every age is anxious. And you've heard me say to you before, I think one of the features certainly of our time, in maybe ways different than in the past, we are chronically anxious. This culture is chronically anxious. And that means that uh, they, uh, we're on edge all the time uh, and uh, things, are, things are difficult Uh, in one sense, and we just don't know what to do. I haven't been able to figure out the reason, but I think part of it may have to do with the pace of change. And I think that uh, we're in the Silicon Valley, so, you know, we know that life is the law of change, but I think it has a a huge effect on people in in more ways than one, and that may have something to do uh, with anxiety. It may be also uh, the sense of impermanence or who knows what. I don't think globalization has anything to do with it, although it might, you know. Anyway, the readings are about anxious times. So I thought I'd preach on all of them and say why it's important that uh, we understand the faithfulness, the presence, the power of God's abundance in our life, even in the midst of anxious times. And that as we seek to develop the internal self-regulation and stamina to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us on a daily basis, uh, these readings may give us some help in terms of the ordering of our community life, of how we might understand God and human history, and some things about God's healing and restoring purposes as being at the center of God's expression in the cosmos. In the reading from Isaiah, chapter 65, it's towards the end of the book of the prophet Isaiah, so it's probably from what biblical scholars call third Isaiah, trito Isaiah. And it is talking about the return from exile in Babylon. And it is a very hopeful passage about what's going to happen and what is happening. And this theme is important for what I opened my sermon with because the Savior is going to talk in more than one place about the restoration from exile. The people who heard and saw Jesus will say that if we had consulted our sacred texts, we would have seen that what he is saying as being fulfilled in him and in his ministry has always been present in the great prophets of Israel, in our self-understanding as a people in deep relationship with God, 
and that the message of God's healing, saving, reconciling power, God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness is for everybody, not just the people of the covenant. And so God's saving embrace is being offered to everyone. And in Isaiah, we see in more than one place this theme, this theme of restoration and return from exile. You see, there were a lot of people at the time of Jesus who believed that although the return had taken place a few hundred years before, it had not completed itself. And there were issues around the temple and all of the things that had to do with the restoration that were works in process. But the followers of Jesus believed that in him this fulfillment had happened. And so this text will be used by those who say, I think we have seen this and it's going to occur in human history. And as we'll see in a few minutes in Luke's gospel, we are going to have a part to play in it even now, even in 2010. So this is an important thing. There's some very extraordinary things that are going to happen about peace, about um, the harmony of the creation. My grandfather used to refer to it. He had a book on his shelf in his office called Kinship with All Life. I don't know what it was about since we were in the animal business. We had the oldest pet shop in the United States. And uh, so we had a lot of animals and stuff around, zoo animals, all kinds of things. Uh, this was a book, I guess, about how they all got along together in some way. But uh, he was always a great champion of that kind of thing. So whenever I read this, the lamb lies down with the lie, you know, I've said that this isn't a stretch for me. This, it might be doable in some way, you know, in that, in that sense. This is completely off the subject. When I was about 12 or 13, my grandfather was the chairman of the, of the San Francisco Zoological Com uh, Society. And we went on this behind-the-scenes tour at the San Francisco Zoo at night, in the middle of the night. It was 11 o'clock at night, 7.30 at night. And we were, some of the big contributors were going with him and Carrie Baldwin, the director of the zoo. And me and my brother Eddie were, were walking around with him. So we decided to go into the elephant house. And uh, the keeper that was in front of us opened this door, this huge metal door and slide, slid it this way. My grandfather sold the Fleischacker family the first three elephants that were part of the San Francisco Zoo 25 years before. And I was 12 years old and I went into this room, this like warehouse room, and these three elephants <laughs> walked out into this, right up, I mean right, it just scared the living daylights out of me. <laughs> They were just huge Indian elephants. They weren't African elephants. Indian elephants are tame. So these elephants came out, and one of them, the oldest one named Margaret, came up to my grandfather and put her trunk on, you know, on his, you know, with a trunk, and then stood, stood sideways and took her trunk and laid it over his shoulder and stood there. And I realized that he, she knew who he was. 
And you know all that stuff about elephants having a memory? <laughs> there you are, a little animal story. <laughs> about kinship with all life. So reading this thing about the book of the prophet Isaiah uh, didn't, didn't, doesn't stretch me. But what it has to do, remember when this was written, it was for the people. It was for all of us to understand ourselves primarily in corporate terms as a community. And so when we live in the age we do where for so long everything is very subjective, it's about how I come to my personal faith, it's about how I come to understand God, how I come to understand its value, utility or not, it's a personal thing. So what you have to always say is that the communitarian aspect of this may have been primary for Isaiah, but it didn't exclude each of us appropriating this in a way of understanding that God's healing, reconciling power is for you personally and individually. And it can work in your life uh, because of the forces of good that are arrayed around us, even in the midst of chronic anxiety and difficulty. So this reading sets us up for that whole idea. The earliest Pauline writings in the New Testament um, are the, is the, from the epistles to the Thessalonians. So uh, this talks about a particular understanding of the Christian church that's very early Pauline. And one of the aspects was, you know, Paul believed that Jesus was going to come any minute back. And of course, the practical problem is He's not here yet. Right? What are we going to do about all that? How do we think about it? And in the interim, certain things within communities began to, to emerge. One of them were Christians who believed if Paul's message was correct, that um, they didn't really have to do anything. They could just uh, think religious thoughts and sort of lie around and I mean, there were various versions of this. Some thought, you know, you could just kick out the jams and it's party-hardy all the time, every day. And there were others who believed they should be in some sort of a perpetual religious swoon waiting for the, for the second coming to occur. And it strikes me that in the Thessalonian community, there were a number of these people. And as what happens when, uh, another thing my grandfather used, when people have nothing on their mind but their hair... <clears throat> they begin to think thoughts and they begin to think, well, maybe it's a good idea for me to pontificate a little bit to somebody else about how they ought to live and what they ought to do. So Paul refers to these people today as busybodies. And church life has been loaded with busybodies from the jump. And the problem is, is that these people not only were probably an emotional drag on the community or sowers of dissension, uh, they also now were dependent on, on the uh, other members of the community because they weren't doing anything. And so Paul had a particularly uh, stiff response to this behavior. Don't work. If they don't work, they don't eat. Now, uh, Christian people, Episcopalians, uh, have a have a in the catechism a, a uh, this question is asked what is the duty of all Christians the duty of all Christians is to follow Christ 
to come together week by week for corporate worship and to work, pray, and give for the spread of the kingdom of God. That's not the sum and substance of, of what the duty of all Christians is, in my view, but it's a good starting place. And it says work, pray, and give. So there must be at least a middle road from, uh, for, between being anxious and working like a squirrel. Do you know in our garden we find stuff that the squirrels have hidden? And you can't, I can't believe that they're ever going to come back and eat any of that. <laughs> it's just like a mania, you know. They're taking it and putting it in stuff. It's just a continuous thing, right? It's that kind of beavering away uh, for whatever is one thing. Or there's the, you know, eat, drink, and be merry because you don't need to worry about it. So being people of the middle way, I think probably this has something to do, this passage, with learning about right relationship to the fulfillment of our vocations, to uh, uh, addressing the responsibilities and the obligations and the opportunities that we have. In the old spiritual life that I was taught many years ago in seminary, uh, these things are called the duties of state. I've talked about them before. Get up and brush your teeth. You know, uh, respond and do this. Don't, don't say, oh, well, Jesus is coming at any moment, so I just don't have to do that, you know. And that's caricaturing it in one sense, but certainly there is a point of view about all of that. You know how this affects uh, our public life? Suppose you're the Secretary of the Interior 35 years ago and a fundamentalist Christian. Why would you worry about whether the redwoods got cut down? It doesn't matter. If Jesus is going to come again anytime soon, who cares? Right? So that's one point of view. It's what Paul was dealing with uh, in the Thessalonian community, in my view. Not taking care of people, not doing the kinds of things you ought to do, not understanding that the saving work of God is accomplished some way in a cooperative relationship between us who respond to the divine initiative begun in us on the one hand, and on the other hand that we have some obligation to see that the, this reconciling restorative work is going to take place in human history, not somewhere else. We will not go to somewhere else to do this. You know, Mother Teresa, Jesus has no other hands but your hands, no other arms but your arms, no other legs but your legs, no other head but your head, no other heart but your heart. That's who has to do this work. And that's what Paul is driving at. Luke, in this rather apocalyptic section from the, uh, from the gospel, uh, is talking about something that can be sharpened if we know something about uh, the histor historical context. Jesus is speaking, he's at the temple, he's speaking about the temple, how beautiful it is, how, how it's been adorned with all kinds of precious things and so forth. And then he tells them it's all going to be destroyed and that in, in so many words, they're going to have to find their solace and comfort, uh, not just in the physical temple, but coming to the reality that, uh, of the impermanence of all things. 
physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. And so how do we understand what it is that we put our trust in? Luke's gospel was written in about 85 AD. In 70 AD, the Roman Empire came into Jerusalem and burnt that temple down and destroyed it. So Luke knew about it and his community knew about it. So those words of Jesus had a particular strength and power to them because they were fulfilled in their own historical time. And they were living in some sort of anxious situation. So somehow the, the affirmative principles that flowed out of the temple and the people of the covenant's relationship with God and their self-understanding can remain in the hearts of faithful people. But we can't put our trust in these things as sort of uh, permanent and never going to change. And so we need to, to know this. And in a way, this is what it's about. Luke is, is the person, by the way, or the gospel writer, who is uh, the least concerned about sectarian issues. He's not concerned about, uh, you know, religious pluralism in the same sense that maybe some of the more strict parties within Judaism would be. He's a Gentile. And so he's, he has come to the conclusion that God's saving and redeeming work is going to happen in human history. And more to the point, he has a, a point of view about this, which is that it is part of the plan of God that the church come into being. So the gospel is about all that, and so is the, so is the book of Acts. And that means, by extension, that if the Spirit of God, which resided in the person of Jesus in his earthly ministry in Luke's story in the gospel, now gets transferred to all of us, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us, then somehow we must be part of God's plan. And that you and I need to labor within history to create a society where it is easier for people to be good where we want kinship with all life, where we own at least uh, the um, not uh, sort of uh, hopeful thing, but the reality that things are impermanent and we need to put our faith, uh, our hope on God. As Paul says in the Ephesians elsewhere, it says in the epistle of the Ephesians. So maybe that's something we need to ponder when we think about living in anxious times. I thought when I was writing my sermon this week, you know, every, we, every time is anxious. I said that earlier. I, it is true. It seems, doesn't it, that in the last two or three years, we've been living through a particularly anxious period in this country, and that is true as well. And I'm not so sure that we're out the other end yet. It's going to be a while. So learning how to understand and to um, uh, live through that is uh, an important kind of a thing, you know. I'm, I'm of an age where when I was a little boy, I grew up on depression stories. Maybe some of you then. My grandfather would drive by somewhere in the city and go, it was during the depths of the depression. He would, <laughs> the depths of the depression. Well, when we got into that, you knew it was when we were marching from one horror to the next. 
Anyway, this week, remember that God's saving, restorative powers, his unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness never leaves you. You have a role to play in the community of faith. You have a role to play in the wider society with regard to uh, having some sort of um, uh, middle way in, in, in the way we work and we understand what work is. Uh, we, we need to avoid being busybodies. That seems to be very clear. And finally, realize that um, God's restorative powers are present to you even in the midst of the greatest turmoil and difficulty as they were for Luke and his community. Amen.